Hello there. Welcome in. It is Downtown the Podcast, episode number 96. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. This is where the Downtown program originates every weekday afternoon from 4 to 6 Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine and streaming audio on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. Program brought to you every week by the people at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A couple of talented performers visit with us this week on the podcast. One uh, considered the most successful singer-songwriter in the history of Canada. We're talking about the legendary Gordon Lightfoot, who's got a brand new album coming out, his first in over a decade. We'll talk with him about that in the second half of the podcast. In the first half, a man who was often called the father of reality television as the creator, producer, and host of the television series Real People. But John Barber's done a lot more than that in his career. He's had a remarkable career and life, and it's all chronicled in his brand new memoir, Your Mother's Not a Virgin. An interesting conversation with uh, the very talented and uh, talkative John Barber here on Downtown the Podcast. John, welcome. Well, I'm delighted to be uh, here with you, Rich and Carrie, so much. I appreciate it, and thank you for that lovely introduction. It sounded to me like a guy who couldn't hold the job. Well, I don't don't know about that. (laughs) It's quite true. Anyway, how are you guys today? We're doing very well, and uh, I have to say, having read the book over the weekend, I'm tired. I'm tired uh, from from your exploits. That's so funny. Uh, we should tell your audience, your mother's not a virgin, and the subtitle is The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American Television. Rich, I had to take 300 pages out to bring it down to 752 pages. And one of the very first reviews I got was from an Iranian doctor who lives in Phoenix, Arizona, a woman doctor, and she got the book about eight or nine months ago when it first came out. And she said, you know, English is my second language, John. So I'm going to tell you it'll be months before I get through your book, but I will indeed send you my comments about it. Honest to God, Rich, 11 days later, I got this unbelievable review that she posted in Amazon. And she started out by saying, I picked up John's book just to look at the first page. And I could not put it down for 10 days, and I have finished the book. But I must tell you, John, from holding it, I got carpal tunnel syndrome. (laughs) So so there you go. Anyway, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, when the book came in, John, I said, geez, you know, uh, Churchill's memoirs were only about 400 pages. (laughs) But then I read it, and I realized he didn't do half the stuff you've done in your life. Oh, my God. And, you know, all the wonderful, wonderful things that happened to me, as you can tell from reading the book, all happened to me by accident. Uh, Some people who uh, are uh, quite religious and big fans of mine have said, thank goodness it was divine intervention. You know, it reminds and. And all of the terrible things that happened to me were the things that I planned really well. They just (laughs) fell apart. But one of my favorite quotes that I've read as a young troubled kid in Canada was from an 18-year-old who was dying in the Civil War. And he called a, uh, a priest in to, to get his last rites or whatever they did in those days. 
And he told the priest that, you know, he said, you know, I prayed for a lot of things to God. And everything I prayed to him for, I never got. But I got everything I needed. Hmm. And, And that's sort of my feeling, you know, because when I was a religious young kid and praying for my father to come home from World War II and he never showed up. I sort of lost my interest in that. But somehow or another, I've lived this magical life. You know, I was deported from the United States twice. And when I was, uh, once when I was 17, once when I was 29. And when I was 46, after winning five Emmys, the only person in television to win Emmys for both entertainment and news, I couldn't get a job. And I couldn't get a job because they considered me too controversial. And I literally quit the business to become a joke writer and raise my son. My son was also another happy accident. I had a (laughs) career, but not until my son did I have a life. And the reason I didn't want a child, Rich, I didn't know what kind of father I would be. I didn't know if I'd be an alcoholic like my mother, an alcoholic like my father, or abandon the family like my parents did. But he absolutely changed my life. And so I've been blessed ever since. And then the the day after I gave up the business, I got a call to meet with somebody about doing a show that turned out to be real people. And a year later, I had the number one show in the history of American television as, as, as far as viewership and popularity was concerned. You know, at that time, Rich, there were only three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. We used to get half for three years. We got half of everyone who was watching television at the time. So I'm enormously proud of that. It's a story that I did. Uh, You know that Vietnam Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C.? At the time, there was enormous pressure not to build that wall because it was first an unpopular war, 68,000 innocent American soldiers were murdered in that war, and it was designed by an Asian-American woman, so she had two strikes against her. And I did a story about a professor in New Mexico whose son was killed one week into that war, and he built a private memorial atop of that hill where he and his son used to go hunting, and there was no publicity, but something in the universe is at work that is very positive. Literally hundreds and hundreds of people went by plane and car and bus to his mountaintop and they helped him build a cathedral. And there were just thousands of pictures of young men all over the hills with inscriptions about them. And I did that story. I got a call from Senator Utah in Utah. Utah. He asked for 50 copies of that story and he sent it to every senatorial office in Washington, D.C., and 60 days later, they approved the building of that wall. We got the Missing Children's Act passed for John Walsh, whom you remember, right. America's right. Most Wanted, and we got a presidential citation for the Navajo Code Talkers. So it was always my belief, Rich, if I am, if I have the most popular, most entertaining show in America, and it's about real people, Every once in a while, when you run across a story of terrible public importance, you have to tell it. And I've always only considered myself a storyteller, even though I'm really, really well known in what they call conspiracy circles, because I have the two definitive documentaries on the murder of John Kennedy. 
because Jim Garrison chose me as the one to be his Boswell over Oliver Stone to tell his story. That's why they considered me controversial. I am enormously, enormously proud of the contributions that I made in Real People. I was dubbed the godfather of reality television. But reality TV then was like a wine. But if you leave wine out a long time, it turns to vinegar. <laughs> and when I got into television, you had to have a modicum of talent, a modicum of personality, a modicum of intelligence. That would get you fired today because all you need today in reality television is an absence of shame. So mm. I'm delighted to be with you two guys. Uh, the book is called Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV. John Barber with us and so many great stories. I, the, the story that I love in the book is about you uh, when you were doing some of your commentaries and... Talked about how Bob Hope, who you acknowledge was someone you loved, was one of the greatest talents of the 20th century, but uh, it was time for him to, to maybe take a break from television. And then you got a surprise phone call, and it turned into quite an amazing appearance by Bob Hope on your show. Oh, well, thanks for reminding me of that story. Oh, and, and bless you for having read so much. Bob Hope, of course, in, indeed, it's, it's uh, true. I was I was the first person in America to become a critic on television news. And I ended up again accidentally because Tom Brokaw saw me in a small station after I'd been fired from the AM show for trying to book Jim Garrison on the show to talk about the Kennedy assassination. I ended up on NBC and that's where Bob Hope was. And I had I had written a review of a movie that I liked and was ready to go on when I decided I was going to watch my idol, Bob Hope, do a, a special on NBC. And Rich, it was dreadful. You could see the cue cards. You could see that he was reading from the cue cards. And I was so heartbroken and so upset. I went on the air and I said, you know, in America, if you work for General Motors or any major corporation and you reach this age of 65, you are forced into retirement. And I said it should hold true also for some comedians because Bob Hope is turning into the J. Edgar Hoover of humor. <laughs> and then I, I decimated the show and it broke my heart to do it. Well, I get off of the air. And nobody's talking to me because it's Bob Hope, for God's sake. And he's on NBC. And I get a call from Bob Howard, who's the general manager of the station. He says, John, oh, John, John, could you take a call from Bob Hope's lawyer or his manager? Because I just can't talk to these people anymore. Do you mind? And I said, no, I don't mind at all, Bob. Just send on the call through and I'll handle the phone rings. And I pick it up and I think it's the lawyer. And the, vo the, the, the voice says, hey, kid, what did I ever do to you? <laughs> and I know I know it's Bob Hope, and I'm no kid. I was 44 years of age at the time. I hear the voice, and I said, oh, God, like that. And he says, you're damn right it is. <laughs> and so he said, again, what did I ever do to you? And I yelled back at him. I said, you bored me, <laughs> and you broke my heart. He said, what are you talking about? I said, listen, I if you remember the review, I talked about when you were, when I was a young boy at 12 years of age in Toronto and all I had to listen to were stories, 
Yours was my favorite show. This is Bob broadcasting from Fort Ord Hope. And your movies with Crosby. I mean, the, the oh, going my, go, those movies on the road were just the road with Bob Hope. They were magnificent. Your movie with Lucy Ball was one of the best movies Lucy ever did. So you could see that I loved you. But it's like Satchel Page, for God's sake. You can't throw a curve anymore. You can't throw a fastball anymore. So don't do it unless you're going to do it right. And then he said to me, you know, they never wanted me. And I said, who never wanted you? He said, NBC never wanted me. And I said, how could they not? Next to, next to Charlie Chaplin, you're the greatest comedian who loved or ever performed in America. He said, thank you for that. But you're right. You each reach an age. And I was the age where I did not fit their demographics or their advertiser. They did not want me anymore. And I said, well, but you were on. He said, we had to buy the time. And he said, and I said, what do you mean you had to buy the time? He said, I was playing golf <laughs> with the president of Texaco and told him I was having problems getting the show on the air. And uh, so I said to him, it's a sense you would never play golf with the president of Humble Oil. He said, hey, kid, I'll do the jokes. <laughs> so anyway, they said they would buy the time. And it became known as barter in television. Mm. And so what they did is they bought the hour and he was on the air. Half the commercial moments belonged to NBC and half to Texaco. But then he said to me, John, do you realize? And I said, well, how did you become so rich? He said, listen, I'm not that smart. He said, I thought when I was in vaudeville, vaudeville would last. It bombed. I thought when I was in radio, radio would last. It would bomb. He said, then I got into television and uh, movies, and that's not going to last. He said, but I did know where they built the vaudeville stages and the radio stations was land. And in those days, John, I paid 90% of all of my income to income taxes. And I couldn't afford to be doing that anymore, so I bought nothing but land. So when they renegotiated my contract at NBC, I said, I don't want any more money. I want you to buy my land. And I'm telling you, young man, the land you're sitting on is mine. Because <laughs> what we did is we negotiated with them because I owned most of Burbank. <laughs> and I said to him, Mr. Hope, you should not be telling me this on the phone. You should be telling me this on a live show that I do over in Channel 13. He said, you mean, I've seen your show. I like your show, but I, I don't think I want to do that. I said, listen, this is a more important story than anything because people are interested in money. Do you know, Rich, he came to the studio without anybody. He came holding a black suitcase, and I had hired Har uh, Harry Blake, who did my makeup and did Carson's makeup and did Red, uh, Red Fox's makeup to come to Channel 13 to do his makeup. And Bob Hope sent him away and put on his own makeup. And he said to me in the makeup room, he was sorry he turned Harry down, but he's always done his own makeup from the time in the 20s when he used to do five shows a day and would have to go by bus and trolley to different places. And that has been his good luck makeup all of his life. I must tell you, 
He really just wanted somebody to talk to about reality. Mm. And he came on the show. You can Google it on my site, www.johnbarbershalfhour. And if you Google uh, Bob Hope with John Barber on Christmas. So instead of going to entertain the groups on Christmas, he came on my show. We were live. And guess what? We had a mystery phone caller who turned out to be Bing Crosby. Right. <laughs> and the interesting insight into both of these personalities in talking to them on the air, and you'll see it in the interview, you could tell which performer was interested in what subject because Bing Crosby remembered the name of the first girl singer whom he dated, and Bob Hope remembered remembered the name of the first sponsor. So <laughs> that was that, I'm so glad you remember that story. And I have scores and scores of them about Rodney Dangerfield, even Lenny Bruce. And, oh yeah. Well, can you can you tell uh, share the advice that you were given by of all people, Gomer Pyle himself, Jim Neighbors? Oh my gosh, Almighty! Yes, at the time. I was living upstairs in an apartment just above a fellow named Mort Lockman. Mort Lockman, for 25 years at that time, had been Bob Hope's head writer. And Mort Lockman took a liking to me. I was working as a waiter in an Indonesian restaurant, and I was aspiring to get into television to be the next Jack Parr. You wouldn't remember, but Jack Parr was by far the best, the brightest, the most interesting, and the funniest late-night talk show host, the original talk show host of The Tonight Show. And I and the reason I admired him, because he had great conversations with people. He discovered uh, Phyllis Diller, Nicholson May, Jonathan Winters, the Smothers Brothers, but he had great contact with intellectuals like uh, uh, Buckley and Gore Vidal, and I didn't know that anybody spoke to anybody when I was a kid. I thought they just yelled. So I thought, I'm going to I'm going to do that. So in any event, Mort, uh, Mort, who wrote one of Bob Hope's greatest lines, you might might remember when Sputnik went up in the 50s. Oh, yes. It was Russian Sputnik and uh, and good for Bob Hope. Mort Lockman wrote, wrote this joke and the joke was give it to Bob Hope. Uh, Bob Hope says. Uh, Sputnik just proves that the Russians had better German scientists than we did, which is a really <laughs> great joke. But Bob Hope said, that's not for me. I'll give it to Mort Saul. So he gave it to Mort Saul and everybody and Mort took bows forever that it was his. And it wasn't. It was Mort Bachman's. <laughs> anyway, Mort said to me, there's a small club in Santa Monica called uh, uh, that you should go down there. They have a Anoki down there who tells these funny jokes about Okies, but then sings like Benumano Gili, for God's sake, sings like <laughs> Enrico Caruso. And he's a big star. I don't know what his name is, but you should go down. So I auditioned. The story about the audition is hilarious. And I was the only comic who did topical jokes that Rick, the owner, former opera singer, ever, ever hired on the show. Well, Jim Neighbors was the guy's name. And he got a standing ovation, justifiably so, all the time. And he became a huge fan of mine. And then I signed to do his first show with, uh, oh, my God, who? Uh, Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith, right, right. Yeah. And he takes me aside to give me a hug and shake my hand and tell me, 
He said, John, he said, I want to tell you something. What I learned about this here town. He said, you know what? I love your stuff, and your stuff's got a hard edge to it, but it's funny, but it's controversial. You got a lot of talent, but I got to tell you what I learned. In this town, it's much better to be liked than to be talented. And I'm telling you, <laughs> it is so true because once I became, started to become successful, you have no idea how many enemies I suddenly developed and friends, by the way. Well, yes, and, and real people, proof of that, because as, as you said, it was such an enormous success. A show that, that you write in the book was crafted to appear spontaneous, but took so much work, and it was going great. And then, as often happens in the world of television, people upstairs screwed it all up. Yes, uh, and, I, uh, you know, in the book, having read the book, I never say anything negative about anybody and the two greatest years that I ever had in television, because I had total control of the show, I was the writer of the show. And uh, as a matter of fact, when I wanted to do John Walsh's story, it had been all over the news. You know, John Walsh's son, Adam, had been kidnapped from a mall in Florida and beheaded. And John Walsh had been going around trying to get the Miami police to cooperate with the FBI, et cetera, et cetera. And no police agencies would cooperate with one another. So I saw him on television unsuccessfully trying to get the Missing Ill Children's Act passed. And I went to Slaughter and I said, I'm going to do that story. He said, you can't do that, John. It's been all over the place. And I said, have you ever heard of the jumping frog of Calaveras County? <laughs> he said, well, who hasn't? I said, that's right. Mark Twain wrote The Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, the first article he ever wrote in a newspaper that made him a star. But The Jumping Frog of Calaveras County had been in the newspapers for 12 years until Mark Twain saw it. So it's not the story, it's the storyteller, and I'm your storyteller, so I'm going to tell the story. I did. The Missing Children's Act was passed again in two months, and I have a letter from John thanking me about that. But the demise of the show came about because the first time I tried to tell Jim Garrison's story on the AM show, which is just a local show, I had read his book, Heritage of Stone. And it was after the loss of the Clay Shaw trial. And I didn't know that he had won the Clay Shaw trial. He won the perjury conviction. He lost the conspiracy conviction, and the government moved in to stop the conviction. I did not know that he had to sue Time Life to get the Zapruder film into a courtroom. And then there was a, 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 paret, a, a pathologist, a forensic pathologist, um, who was at the non-autopsy, who said there was no autopsy because blue suits in general stopped it. They were never allowed to look at x-rays or photographs of the president of the United States. And if you look at the Warren report, in the 26 volumes, you will find one picture, one photograph. There's a cartoon drawing of a bullet going through his head. So when I tried unsuccessfully to book him, I was fired. But when I had real people on the air, and we had the chance now to tell Jim Garrison's story again, because it was 1980, and the House Select Committee, which was created as a result of people seeing the Zapruder film late night on Geraldo's show, because they didn't know that Dan Rather had lied to them about the direction of John Kennedy's head after the bullet struck him in the front. So there was such millions of people contacted Congress and they 
had to set up the House Collect Select Committee, which was again sabotaged by the by the uh, uh, CIA. And so I tried to tell his story. And when I said I never badmouthed anybody, the two greatest years I ever spent, two and a half years, was running real people and being the storyteller. And the worst year was the last year with George Slaughter, who became the most evil, most despicable, egomaniacal, greediest human being I ever met. The only bad thing I said about anybody in the book was about Freddie Silverman. <laughs> when I was first discovered uh, by Merv Griffin and his agent, Marie Schwartz, they took me to Freddie Silverman, who was at CBS. And they said, John would make a great talk show host or a game show host. And Silverman looked at me, he was younger than me, and I'm a kid. And he said, you're never going to make it in television, you're too soft. <laughs> and I, I left the building. Now, guess what Freddie Silverman did? <laughs> Remember Hollywood Squares? Yes. It was on CBS, and he says, this crap's never going to work, and he canceled it. <laughs> NBC picked it up that afternoon and became one of the monster hits of NBC. And he said the same thing about real people. We had enormous fights about that. So the only comment I make about Freddie Silverman, because what I do is I show you the wonderful things that Schlatter did, then I show you just the horrible things he did, and you draw your own conclusion. But about Freddie Silverman, I could not help myself. I said if one creative thought was Niagara Falls, Freddie Silverman would die of thirst. <laughs> John Barber's book is called Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV. It is an absolutely wonderful read. And, John, uh, so many more stories that we didn't get to about Merv and, and Sinatra and Jim Garrison in more detail. We'd love to have you come back and talk about the book some more, if you wouldn't mind, down the road. Oh, I would love to do that. As a matter of fact, i got so much stuff to tell you. I could do it periodically. But I'm on my way the first week in April. I'm going to be in Toronto doing book signings at their Indigo, which is their Barnes & Noble. I'm going to be doing some major media and TV there. Then I go from New York from more of the same. So when I get back near the end of April, I'll give you guys another call. And what we'll try to do is I'll try to map out some of the stories where I could tell you about these some of these great individuals and my four and a half magnificent years with Frank Sinatra. But in the meantime, if you go to my site, www.johnbarbersworld.com, you can see Sinatra introducing me on The Tonight Show. You can see my mentor when I started as a comic was Red Fox. And uh, you can go and see me roasting Red Fox. And you can also see for nothing the original Garrison tapes, which won the San Sebastian Film Festival Award. And it's a mind-blowing, thrilling documentary. So again, Rich, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And thank Carrie. John, thank you so much. It's been a real treat for us, and we look forward to catching up with you again sometime in April. You have a great day. Talk to you in a month or two. That's John Barber on Downtown, the podcast. And Man, uh, Carrie, I think we could have gone uh, about another hour with John, and he still would have been going strong. You could tell that he was a broadcaster because yes. just one question, and he was off and running. He still had that nice, uh, nice announcer's voice as well. Absolutely. By the way, if you're keeping score... It's two weeks in a row we've had a guest who's 87 years old 
and has more energy than you or I. Kim Novak last week, John Barber this week. I've resigned myself to that fact, yes. <laughs> when we come back, uh, Gordon Lightfoot talks with us about his new album, Solo. It's Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Would you like to go dancing? Would you like to go home? Would you like to go dancing? Would you like to go home? The unmistakable voice like of Canadian singer-songwriting legend Gordon Lightfoot, who's been making and writing great music for more than six decades now. He's gone back in the studio to release a brand new album, his first in over a decade, called Solo. And uh, we welcome Gordon Lightfoot to the show to talk about the making of the album and his career. Gordon, thanks so much for being with us, and welcome to Bangor, Maine. I've played there a couple of times. I remember it well. I, I've, I saw you one of those times. Uh, Gordon, thank you so much for being with us today. We are uh, so excited about the new album and uh, what really is getting back to roots, uh, simple and elegant, just you and a guitar. I, I thought about... about you know, I, I found about half that stuff by accident. I, I, I just found it. It was, it was hiding. It was, <laughs> it was hiding in my office. And uh, we were moving the office, and I discovered about half of that stuff was was on this one lone little CD that I found. And uh, God, we worked around it and decided to, to orchestrate it and do it all over again. And the guys knew about it and. And uh, we thought about it for months and months and months, and all of a sudden decided that, you know, I can actually hear my left foot going on one of those takes. <laughs> <laughs> I can, you know, it, was, it, it, it sounded so good. I mean, it, it was what it was. It was the original virgin recordings of, you know, tunes that I just wrote, you know. Well, you know, you, you, nothing in between. You know, you've written a lot of songs when you just find quality songs sitting around on an old CD. Did did they come back to you? Did you remember the process of writing them when you heard them? Yeah, I did. I, I remembered when. It was right around 1990, during a three-year period from 1997 to the year 2000. I wrote about 18 of them, and, and I had uh, eight of them made it on the Harmony album. I had two more. Uh, to make 10, and, and I was also recovering from a, a series of operations at that point that, that nailed me down for two and a half years. And this stuff had been written just before that, before there were any health issues, and I was a peak vocal, peak guitar, and yet still thinking about doing the whole thing again from the ground up. We thought about it, thought about it, and we said, just let's, why don't we just let it, let it rip, because the fans are going to like this. I thought, I said, you know, it's really going to like this. It's going to be the fans, because they're, they're going to understand, be able to hear me play playing the guitar, which usually, <laughs> you know. I had a chance to listen to the album earlier today, and it's just terrific. Oh, so sweet. Uh, the first single uh, just is classic Gordon Lightfoot. But I think a couple of my favorites on the album, uh, one is Do You Walk, 
do you talk? Can you tell me a little bit about that one? Okay. Yeah, I would not. I, I might. I might. We might do that one. We might orchestrate that one and do it on stage. That would be interesting. I'm going to have my full band with me. I'm not doing like a like a solo tour. I can only do a couple of them. I, I we've got a very strong show right now. We don't want to mess with them. We we, we don't want to get to, to get too long. You know, you got to be careful that you don't. A lot of people go too long up there. You know, and, and I just uh, I like to do it within like a, a certain period of time. So every time you're adding stuff in, like you got to take something, something's going to go out, and you wonder what it's going to be. Well, it's a tough some call. Some tunes that never go out, that you can never take out of the show. Some of the songs have to be done every night, and, uh, and no kidding about it, you know. Mm. And uh, there's, there's about 12 of them like that, maybe a dozen that you do every every show you do them. But they'd all be in different spots and different places, and they'd be surrounded by album, popular album cuts that people are familiar with, like Don Quixote and, mm. and Beautiful and, uh, you know, uh, We're talking with Gordon Lightfoot here on Downtown. Now, what is it about those songs of yours from from the 60s, 70s, and, and 80s that sound so fresh today? Part of it, obviously, is the quality of the song and the performance, but the production as well. There's nothing dated about those songs when you listen to them now. You know, I've got, there's a certain, I've got a certain kind of a thing going on my vocal. I think it, it, it goes back to Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> I think it goes back to Ireland. It's like it's like a, I've thought about it a lot, uh, but some kind of a, of, of a lilt. You got a lilt. Some people say you got a lilt to your voice, Gord. <laughs> you know. Have you ever heard that word? Like, uh, absolutely. Like well, I, I've got enough Irish in me to be well acquainted with that word. <laughs> well, there. <laughs> so, so, so I, I I strive for that, and I don't even know it's there. You know, and and it uh, it has a, a, its own. It's its own rhythm track. My my voice has its own rhythm track to to what's going on. Is the story I've heard true about one of your biggest songs, the Carefree Highway? Was that really inspired by a road sign? Yeah, it was. It, it and wrote it down. Almost left in the the glove compartment of a car in Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, we all, I almost forgot about that one. <laughs> we were we were going from Flagstaff to Phoenix, and we. We crossed the sign, we passed the sign for Carefree Highway one night about 2 o'clock in the morning. And I, the bass player was driving and I was in passenger. I said, did you see that? Hey, I said, that would make a good song. So I wrote it down, put it in the glove compartment, left the motel and didn't think about it again until we got to the airport. Well, it's a good thing you remember that one. What did we write down? Oh, here's this song. Yeah, <laughs> Carefree Highway. Gee, and about... Two weeks later, I was sitting one afternoon, and boom, there there it is. There she is. Was there a real Anne, or was that simply a, a little poetic license? Her name was Anne, and I'll be damned. <laughs> yeah. I met her at the, the Duke Curl. <laughs> no, did, did you like the sport curling? Yeah, oh, sure. It's very big here in Maine. You see it on, you see it on TV. I met her at the curling rink. Wow. Because I curled. I, yeah, I'm up here in Canada, right? In Toronto. Well, when I first came to the city here, I curled and, and I met her at the curling rink. And so, her name was Anne. And did she sweep you off your feet? Oh, that's awful. I can't believe I said oh, she, I guess so. <laughs> I guess she did. It was a very short, a very short relationship. I remember that. <laughs> uh, she was the type that would be moving on for sure. <laughs> 
I, I understand that when you wrote and released The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, that you became very close to some of the family members of folks who were lost. Uh, is that Did that happen, and did you stay in touch with them through the years? Yes, yes, always, always. Then there's my scholarship at the, at the Maritime Academy in Traverse City. And uh, always, oh, absolutely, stay in touch, absolutely. The new album is called Solo, and it is a classic Gordon Lightfoot, a simple, beautiful music. Uh, it's so great to have new Gordon Lightfoot music out there for all of us to hear, and we're so grateful for you taking time to talk with us about it today. Thank you so much, Gordon. Thank you. That's Gordon Lightfoot. His new album is called Solo, available officially on March 20th. Our thanks to Gordon, thanks to John Barber, and thanks to you for joining us. We'll catch you next time on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by... Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.